Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street, and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So today we're going to delve not only into the market reaction to the conflict in southern Israel between Israel and Hamas, but geopolitics and geopolitical risks as a whole, both short term and and long term. Uh, at the time of recording this, Israel had not deployed ground forces into Gaza, only air forces. Uh, and that, of course, might change, might well have changed, because what we do know about war is it concertina's time. Decisions are can be taken very quickly on, on incomplete information, and then there are the feedback ripple-through effects of those. But we, we aren't political commentators. So, Robert, can we start with the immediate market response to the conflict? Can you talk about what outcome you think the market is pricing and what can we infer about the market's expectations for the future, given where, uh, given the responses and the pricing we see now. Yeah, I think in general, it's, it's useful to put um, these geopolitical shocks in context of sort of past shocks and uh, typical market reactions. And I think the word shock is is the important thing to start with. Is usually when there are reactions in markets, it's because something's unexpected. Um, so it was an unexpected event and. It's not completely priced in, and you see these these shocks to the system. So typically, markets do react with a bit of a shock. Why is that? Because you're uh, expecting a number of things. One being greater volatility in markets. The other potential consequence is thinking about the knock on in terms of supply chains and impact directly to to sort of trade. And more importantly, I think it's confidence. So it's how the market gets repriced really through the the risk premium. Risk premiums tend to expand. So that's usually the first order um, impact is sort of market shock. And there's a bit of a sell-off. So the traditional response, sell-off in risk assets and some response to safe havens. And to a certain degree, you can see that in some of the reaction. And then how much of that typical response you see is is uh, tends to lend itself towards whether the market's pricing in the severity of the crisis. Because clearly there's a shock and severity is important. Severity and how far things spread. So severity leads to bigger reactions. And is it going to be locally contained or does it then um, sort of spread regionally and, and globally? And most of the time, um, I would say with shocks, as we've seen now, you do see a bit of a, there, there is a bit of a sell-off in equities and there's been a bit of a bid in safe haven assets, and notably gold, but also Bitcoin a bit in the last last week or so. The response in financial markets to this particular event has been relatively muted so far. Now, that means more of the probability is that this will be a less severe and more regionally contained event. Now, I think two things I think are worth putting in, in context is most geopolitical crises in the last 30 or 40 years, that has been the, the, the natural response. They're, they're, to some degree, some of the consequences, there have been sort of short, sharp sell-offs, um, more than we've seen so far. But 
but usually they've um, bounced back within six months, 12 months. And that's partly because we were in this more benign period for the world with with sort of globalization and the difficulty or, 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 or the consequence of really having one major power that was um, sort of the Pax Americana, that America was the major power. We weren't likely to see this sort of global um, conflict. I think that's where the risk is a bit more than the market's pricing at the moment is the potential now for a wider conflict is probably greater than it has been in the last 30 years. So although this particular event at the moment, market pricing is relatively contained, the risk of it spreading wider and certainly not just due to the Middle East, but more conflict between the US and China, US and Russia more generally, is sort of greater. The, the risk of this a more severe event is probably greater than it's been for quite a while. I think certainly in the press, you've heard Ray Dalio speaking about probabilities of, of large wars between 30 and 50%. So it's not inconceivable uh, or sort of not a, not a small probability um, compared to the past. But I think that's somewhat the problem of what do you do about the geopolitical conflicts as well is most of the time geopolitics, if it is a short reaction and then it it bounces back, it's pretty hard to, to sort of place your portfolios around it. Now, the problem is when it matters, when it really matters and you have global war, then there can be severe loss of capital, particularly for losing sides. Um, So that's where really the impact for portfolios can be extreme, direct physical loss of capital, but also loss of of financial capital. So I think that's the big problem is it doesn't matter until it does. So that's a difficulty. And I think the second problem, which I think just sums up market reaction, why it's so difficult to pull out one particular event, is because most of the time it hasn't mattered, actually what really is important is what else is going on when you go into a conflict. And that, that really is important because we, the difference between sort of 9-11, why the response after that for markets persisted a bit longer, and then it bounced back, is we were entering into a global recession at that period of time. So really, the global context is really important, as well as what's priced into markets. So the difference between, let's say, the First World War, Second World War, First World War was more of a shock. Less was priced in. So there was a much bigger reaction immediately. Second World War, actually, the pricing happened, a lot of it going into the war in the run-up to the war. So that, again, is the big problem is it's what's priced in and it's people's reactions, that typical reaction, oh, we buy gold because it's a safe haven. The problem is with markets is it's all about what other people are doing and what they're doing based on past um, activity. So that's why it is a bit difficult to to read the events just based on sort of historical responses, even though the general scheme of thinking about shock to the system, how severe the shock is going to be, how much is priced in, I think is the way to um, sort of think about setting up your portfolio. Yeah, I think you touched on a couple of concepts there, Robert, that we've discussed a lot over the months and years. And one of them, I think, is the, let's put it as a sort of failure of imagination concept. This is the idea that we are uh, not generally terribly good at being able to imagine what might happen. We have a tendency to extrapolate forward from recent experience and not look back far enough to see what the possible uh, outcomes might be, and I think just to you know, bring it back briefly to the what, what happened in southern Israel. I mean, arguably, uh, not to obviously place fault anyway, other than with those who perpetrated it. But you know, arguably, there was a failure of imagination 
uh, not to foresee this as a possibility. You can see something similar, for example, as you mentioned, 9-11, that also argued as a failure of imagination. So I think our ability as humans and therefore as an investor to imagine what might happen can be a bit constrained. And the other concept that you talked about is reflexivity, this idea that this path dependency where one thing leads to another and it produces responses. So perhaps drawing it out a little bit further, you talked about the response to World War One, where it wasn't anticipated. There was something, if you like, of a failure of imagination and therefore the market response was more... Uh, acute than in World War II, where there had been recent experience of a world war and therefore better ability to discount it. Can you talk about what were the defensive assets in those circumstances? So let's sort of posit a, a broader conflict. It doesn't just stay in southern Israel. It expands to a regional conflict. And then from there, for in ways that we can perhaps all imagine, it becomes some sort of global conflict. What are, the, what are the assets and what are the portfolios that might provide security in those circumstances? Or, 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 or is the answer that really <laughs> when you have these global conflicts, there really is no hiding? Well, I think, yeah, th- th- there is hiding and there are things that you can do. I think that's one thing, even if we look back on wars, actually a lot of assets, even during a war, can actually do pretty well. So there can be a big shock initially. Um, but particularly the equities of the countries that um, prevail, you know, in the long run, tend to do pretty well. Even if we look back to Pearl Harbor as another example of one of these shock events, a big re- negative reaction initially, but actually US equities through the war did ha- had a strong performance in real terms thereafter. So I think the big lesson I would draw out of a war and big major conflicts, so if, if we take out the minor conflicts, major conflicts, Investing capital in the losers of those conflicts, be it bonds or equities, leads to massive uh, destruction of, of wealth. So that's where the loser, so German equities and German bonds get destroyed in the Second World War and even the First World War. And also looking at revolutions and other events like that, thinking about China or Russia in the last hundred years. Those are examples where you can have complete loss of capital. So I think that's one thing to avoid. And the other answer for investors, really, what is your safe haven, as it were, is just remember diversification does matter. So that's one of the reasons not having home country bias, having all your eggs in one one basket, being diversified is is one area of defence. I think the other bit, which I didn't mention before, wars do tend to be um, inflationary. So there's a lot of there can be a lot of uh, defence spending, a lot of fiscal spending, and a lot of debt incurred. Um, and the, the answer then coming out of the conflicts is often there are these periods of, of uh, inflation. So I think that's a medium term risk that you think about what types of assets to hold um, into the future. And also um, thinking about currency debasement when there's uh, when there's inflation. So I think having some real assets um, is another important thing to think about. I mean, that's one reason why people talk about gold, but actually there are other assets that that did pretty well. But if you're thinking about which equities, yes, you can do sector, um, think about defensive sectors. So you want less of the cyclical sectors going into the conflict, certainly and more of the 
the stable consumer stables uh, defensive sectors where there is more consistent demand and tilty in terms of factors more towards quality factors rather than rather more aggressive factors i think is is important but having said that again it depends on the nature of the conflict how severe it is how quickly you get into into the rebound because actually even we talked about those conflicts the defensives help you for a certain period but actually after a lot of negative news is priced in the cyclicals, the value stocks tend to rally really aggressively. And certainly that did happen after um, the Second World War, as another example. So I think it's, it is a little bit hard to try and suggest there will always be one answer. And equally, if you look at the difference between the Second and First World Wars, uh, picking which country will do well actually was pretty hard because British stocks in the First World War did really badly. Now, one would have thought in the Second World War, actually, they might have done badly, but they didn't do as badly. So um, partly because of what's priced in already. So I think that really is important. So I think what's priced in going into it um, and the economic conditions, be it whether you have a lot of deflation or inflation going into the period, matters really uh, as much. So that's what makes it slightly tricky now is you would think the US would be a bit of a safe haven in some ways. And certainly there will be some safe haven stocks, high quality stocks in the US that are that are, would be in that environment a, a sort of defensive place to be. But the problem is you're going in with very expensive valuations and that really matters. The going in condition of the economy and um, matters more. And I would say even at the moment, the chance of that big sort of war event is a low probability compared to the base case. So what matters more is what are the conditions we're going into in terms of the economy? We're late cycle, we've got expensive assets, we've got the the dangers of higher interest rates going up. And even in the last week, more of the negative news to equities is to, is, is about actually uh, the economy being pretty strong and rates going up rather than response or risk of conflict. So we really do have to remember the bigger picture, uh, the other conditions um, are really, really important going into, going into these events and shocks. And, and I think what you're saying there, Robert, is that whilst these events do have an impact on markets and therefore on portfolios, it's not as though you think of geopolitical risk protection as as its own separate dial where you say, well, okay, right now, you know, geopolitical risk is higher for all the reasons that we can see. And therefore, you know, you're going to adjust portfolios to be more defensive. You're saying there's a set of circumstances within which this is going on, which is much more likely to be predictive of future outcomes and is the set of risks and expectations against which you are structuring portfolios. So I suppose in practice, are you saying, Robert, that whilst we need to incorporate in our thinking the fact that uh, geopolitical risk is higher and there is a higher risk of some sort of larger conflict. That's not in any sense the the dominant uh, factor in your thinking and actually the things you would do in order to protect yourself against that risk are things you're going to be doing anyway because diversification and being humble about what the future might hold are embedded in our thinking, regardless of whether it's geopolitical risk or pricing risk or economic risk. I think that's broadly exactly that's the, the main takeaway. And on top of that, because those other risks are high, 
having an extra risk added into it means it means you're probably a bit more defensive anyway than you would have been otherwise. So I think having conflict plus diff- other risks is a more tricky environment. So your your levels of uh, defensiveness are uh, a bit higher than they um, than they would have been otherwise. So we see sometimes investors owning a doomsday portfolio archetypically it's it's land in a safe remote place be it new zealand or or patagonia and it's uh, a farming asset and it's a place to which conceptually one might flee were things to go very wrong now the feasibility of getting there in a time of war will, will put to one side but are those things you think uh, should be incorporated in portfolios or do they do they sit slightly outside the portfolio you need to deal with the risks that prevail for most of the time? Do you think when you're thinking about portfolios that there's a small percentage that's this extreme risk hedging part or does it really sit somewhere outside in its own separate place? I think it's a, it's a yes and no answer is that those extreme risks you should consider and that should be part of how you put together a portfolio. Now, it depends on the investor and the portfolio you're looking after, whether there are other assets outside that you then can take into account. Um, but yeah, I think for anybody, having a piece of your portfolio to protect in an extreme event makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's that's why a portfolio is not completely risk on the whole time. And I think that's, if we're talking about defence against um, conflict and geopolitical risk, those are two of the big protections you've got alongside diversification is, firstly, having a long-term mentality, a long-term horizon as an investor. So thinking long-term actually is quite freeing and protecting in a way. So yes, you want some assets to protect you against a real disaster scenario, but actually most of the time, in the long run, you get through the difficult times. Humanity prevails and so having that long-term horizon helps you see through some of the difficulty and the noise in the short term to invest into the into the longer term. So long-term horizon is helpful. But the other is actually having a piece of cash. Why, why your portfolio is completely not invest, fully invested the whole time? Now, that's part of your safe haven. You can have specific assets, the uh, land or specific protections. But actually having cash gives you the liquidity to respond. Because in a crisis, you don't want to be panicking. That's the key part. Having the long term and uh, horizon, being disciplined and and being able to not panic, you need the cash liquidity to be able to see you through those periods and take advantage of opportunities as they arise. So that's why having a bit of liquidity at these times is a good idea. So that should be a part of everyone's direct portfolio when you're thinking of it. And I mean, other people, are, uh, other assets that you, you think of, it is about portability of wealth in a time of uh, crisis and war. This is one of the reasons why even jewellery um, is what people actually need to, in the barter environment. People, that's actually been one of the ways people have managed to move wealth quickly. And this is actually one of the um, arguments for things like Bitcoin is, a, is again, portability in a time of crisis that you can move your wealth. So it's one of the reasons why investors have a small piece of their portion in those those assets. So I think, yes, you can, you can think about those, those scenarios, but it is important to have that long-term horizon and actually think about where the majority of the the outcomes are going to be, which in the long run, when you're investing for that, actually there's a pretty positive future for humanity outside these these risks and um, dangers which which could uh, could sort of engulf us. Let's extend from this to talk about 
investing in a multipolar world. Because I think one way of looking at the rise in geopolitical tension is to say it's the flip side, uh, in a way, as you said at the outset, Robert, of the maybe not the end, but the the relative reduction, uh, huge though it is, of US power. We've lived through the Pax Americana where US political and military strength has been able to dominate outcomes and to largely have uh, its way or the West's way. The reason why we're talking about geopolitical tensions is because there are more actors in the world that seek to challenge that or resent its extent, whether that is Russia, not necessarily economically more powerful, but politically more willing to take risks. And in the case of China, clearly economically and militarily and politically, just relatively, well, in absolute terms, more powerful uh, and relatively growing in strength vis-a-vis the US. And we've touched on this before. And I wonder if you could talk, Robert, about how we think about allocating assets and managing portfolios in a time where we don't have that single dominant economic system in quite the same way as we had, say, 10 to 15 years ago. So I'd say even 10 to 15 years ago, diversification is a, is a good thing for portfolios. So I think that's a, that, is, that is important anyway. So I don't think you want to make binary bets, but even more so in a multipolar world, it's important to think about where the sources of growth are going to be and um, sort of protect your portfolios uh, accordingly against the risks um, risks that are there. So if we specifically look at uh, where we are at the moment, what does that mean in terms of the dollar? Well, I think the dollar still is a safe haven currency, still is the dominant global currency, but there are a lot of headwinds uh, that, that it faces going forward. And most notably, again, starting conditions, you start with an expensive um, dollar. You start with a period where budget deficits and, uh, are particularly wide and growing, and you face a lot of, uh, a, well, a lot more challenges from other regions in the world than in the past, and a lot more motivation for some of those countries now with growing tensions to actually move their money out of the dollar system. So I think when we're thinking about currency risk, if we're thinking about that as the first avenue to go in, you do want to diversify your currency risks a bit more broadly, certainly given where we start with the dollar. But as we mentioned at the beginning, it's not so much having it in particular currency bases, but also thinking about uh, real assets. So productive assets, they're going to protect um, the value of your portfolio over time. So I think those two factors going into a period of geopolitical tension, having real asset, having more real assets, productive assets, and diversifying your um, currency risk is, is pretty important. Now, before the risk was grew too high, uh, when we were thinking about China, China was a growth engine for the world. So having exposure to China and the emerging markets, as well as the US, was a good balancing factor for portfolios. I think the risk we face at the moment is, again, one of those extreme events where your money gets stuck somewhere, it's very hard to price. So the, the difficulty now faced for uh, Western investors uh, investing in China it's, it's pretty hard. And any investor really now, when we're looking at private assets in China, the market is really completely drying up. So venture capital fundraising, completely gone um, at the moment. Real estate markets, clearly in a very tricky environment. So again, starting conditions matter. So even with the geopolitical tensions, the fact we have um, some major problems, short-term and potentially medium-term problems in China, 
means China's less of a um, or a more difficult place to invest. So for that, for investors that want to diversify, I think there are other ways than having to just place it in. You want some in your the Western uh, sphere and you want some in China. I think you can place your uh, your diversifying assets in other parts of the emerging world. I think where potentially geopolitical tensions directly are a bit lower, and some of those countries could benefit from being not completely allied to either of the um, sort of two main um, spheres of influence. So I think that that in this this world of, of sort of multipolar world, you do want to diversify, but it, it's a bit more tricky just with China, but other parts of emerging world are potentially good um, areas to invest in. Um, one that's getting a lot of focus at the moment clearly is India. Um, so I think that's an example potentially of growth into the future. But there, where starting conditions in terms of valuations are a little bit stretched, so even there there are some some difficulties. But it it is a tricky it's a tricky world to navigate. Um, so I think not, uh, making sure you you protect against the extreme outcomes, but do focus on areas where there are going to be growth. And just think about one of the big growth trends, or, or a couple, two of the big trends that we're looking at that are going to majorly affect uh, the world economy. Number one, AI and data. Um, so who's going to be the winner there? And in a multipolar world, we're going to have different streams of technology and potentially different winners. But you want to go where the research um, is strongest. And at the moment, that does look like it's in the West overall, although there are some areas where China had been doing pretty well, but they're facing the difficulty now with tensions um, in terms of getting access to um, the, the right semiconductors and other, other materials. Um, so I think that's an important trend to think about, which does veer you more towards source of growth in, in the Western sphere. And I think the other really is thinking about um, climate change and uh, sort of energy transition. And there, arguably, there's been a bit more innovation in China in some of the technologies. But that's also where there's going to be a lot of um, government expenditure. So, and a lot of potential benefit for, for not just new technologies, but those that don't lose out uh, from the changes that happen. So I think there the, the, the argument for having your assets in different spheres is a bit higher and potentially in other areas like Europe and other parts of the world. So I think bearing in mind the multipolar world, diversification is an answer, but it is the tricky balance of avoiding some of those extreme outcomes. Robert, thank you. I think although we were talking Last year about geopolitical risks and tensions, the themes that emerge are ones that we have talked a lot about over the course of these podcasts and the, and the webinar beforehand, which is, and a few come to mind, the importance of diversification, which is the flip side, I think, of being humble about what might happen next. Let's not succumb to a failure of imagination. Let's consider how wide the possible range of future outcomes might be, whether those are triggered by economic activity or by geopolitical. Therefore, be humble, be diversified, don't be too confident about uh, what you think is going to happen next. And I think another big theme is the one of be mindful of the conditions from which, which prevail when you are starting out if things are cheap. That gives you a lot of protection against risks, whatever they may be. Troublingly, I suppose for us right now, is that generally speaking, things 
well, certainly uh, some equities, uh, particularly US equities, and particularly the ones that have done so well recently, arguably look relatively uh, expensive and therefore generally, regardless of geopolitical risk, one would want to be cautious and suitably diversified. So I think when I reflect on the geopolitical risk, we all hope that it uh, ends in a relatively benign fashion against the range of possible outcomes, which clearly do include uh, a global conflict. So let's hope for for that outcome. But actually, geopolitical risk is just one of those risks for which one should risk manage and which should lead one to be humble about what might happen next and therefore always think about diversification and be imaginative about what might happen next. So um, thank you, Robert. Thank you for that. Uh, Thank you for joining and goodbye. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com.